Blog Talk Radio. Welcome back to Zion's Redemption Radio Network. I'm your host, Mark Lichtenwalter. This is Fundamentally Mormon. Today we're going to be reading chapter 24 of Polygamy in the Bible, pages 248 to 260. The title of the chapter is Contest at Law. The reader portion of the program is about 39 minutes long. After the reader portion of the program, we'll read it with commentary. I don't know if we'll have to do a part two of this or not. It's a pretty long chapter. But any time during the program, if you have any questions or comments, The guest call-in number is 917-889-8827. That's 917-889-8827. And I will take you into the screening room and you can ask me your personal questions or comments. If you'd like to go live on the air, after the reader portion of the program and after the commentary recording, I will have the lines open. There's also a chat room at blogtalkradio.com forward slash fundamentally Mormon, along with the links to read this for yourself and the links to read this book for yourself and a link to find other great books on restoration theology. Thank you for listening. Contest at Law, Chapter 24 of Polygamy in the Bible, pages 248 to 268, program for Thursday, February the 24th, 2022 at 6 p.m. Mountain Time. Guest call-in number is 917-889-8827. Chat room and links to reading this chapter and book as well as listening online can be found at link below. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. He will save us. Since the time of Christ, perhaps nothing portrays the foolishness of man as vividly as his laws governing marriage. Numerous, inconsistent, and outright ridiculous marital laws have marred every era in history. Most of this legislation is bent towards superstition rather than practicality or divine law. Upon close examination, it will be observed that man's laws are always changing, but God's laws remain constant. This often causes a clash between civil and biblical law. But human legislators should have no more jurisdiction over marriage than they do over baptism or the Lord's Supper. 
men might legislate laws contrary to the Ten Commandments if they wish, but that does not invalidate them, nor change God's sanction at them. Who would suppose that courts and congresses could assume the power to legislate against God's laws? Nevertheless, such tribunals have often enacted laws against God's laws of marriage. Civil authority has no jurisdiction over the freedom of conscience. Men are accountable to the dictates of their own conscience in moral and religious matters, for this is God's inalienable right to man. Men proclaim and subscribe to the separation of church and state, which means a church has no right to make laws to govern the state. But, conversely, it also means that the state has no right to govern or dictate laws governing a church or religion. Had the scriptures forbidden polygamy, all the human laws that could be enacted, could not make it lawful in the sight of God M- for that would place men above God. On the other hand, if God has not forbidden plural marriage, then all the men on earth even if joined with the angels in heaven, cannot make it sinful. Throughout history we have seen the flagrant abuse by both church and state in their making and enforcing unreasonable and outlandish laws. Suppose Abraham, Jacob or Moses lived in our contemporary society. Many of the Christian nations have laws that would put them in jail. But the real burlesque of modern churches is that they would have these men excommunicated. We live in a generation when men have enacted laws against plural marriage and but they rarely punish men or women for a dozen divorces, sexual seduction, spawning illegitimate children, aborting babies, or whoredom. What an irony and dash we do not punish what God condemns, but we punish what God has commanded. The prime example, by the hands of men, administering civil law, Christ was condemned and crucified. Since polygamy seems to have been a popular type of marriage in biblical times, let us consider when monogamy was originally enforced as a law. Romulus, the founder of Rome, was the leader of a band of outlaws. After their ravaging and sacking the nearby communities, they hid in and among the hills of Rome. Eventually their numbers became so great that they wanted to become a community with wives. Since they had no women among them, they chose to catch the Sabine women who came to the river to bathe and wash clothes. After their successful rustling, they decided to make a law against any man having too many wives, while others had none at all. Lieutenant was called monogamy, and this is the first instance of any such law to enforce that system of marriage. But they also believed in divorce, and so it was not uncommon for Romans to have married a half dozen women in a half dozen years. This was tandem polygamy. Yet with all the power, size and dominion that the Roman Empire aspired to and attained, their marriage laws continued to be the same as they were with the little band of outlaws who first established them. Lieutenant is said that Julius Caesar attempted to have a law passed in favor of polygamy, but could not affect it. The Romans were too much opposed to the practices of the Jewish and Christian people to be persuaded to adopt it. 
the Roman government was monogamous, and therefore had an inescapable political pressure on the religion of the Christians. Christianity was not tolerated by Rome until Constantine, the Roman emperor in the 4th century, decided that all Romans should become Christians. He issued a decree that all Rome would be baptized Christians. Old, young, soldiers, criminals, etc., were all baptized, even though they were not converted. Lieutenant was a strange spectacle, but the Romans were not really made Christians. Christianity became Roman. Monogamy was not the only form of heresy that had been either forced or infiltrated into the Christian religion. As early as the first century, the doctrine of celibacy began to make inroads into Christianity also. Many Gnostic teachers of the first century, such as Simon Magus, Menorda, and Cerinthus, who all studied at Alexandria, later became Christians. They brought with them many of the Gnostic teachings which were infused into Christianity and then disseminated as Christian doctrine. Part of this heresy began in the first century, prevailing in the second century, and had permanently corrupted the church in the third and fourth centuries. Much of this Gnostic idealism came from some of the Persian or Magian systems of faith. Some of the early Gnostic Christians were Valentine, Montanus, Tudelian, and Originus of Saturninus in 115 that was advocating that the moral law was ascetic and severe and dash that celibacy was more pure than marriage. Another was Vodessens, who wrote in 170 that the disciples of Christ would be closer to God if they would renounce wedlock, abstain from animal food, and live in solitude on the slightest and most meager diet, and even to use water instead of wine in the Lord's Supper. Montanus, 175 had advocated that there should be no second marriages and chaste women should wear veils. His most distinguished disciple was Tadalian, Bishop of Carthage, whose voluminous works have been held in the greatest esteem. Origen, whose learning and numerous writings also had this same Gnostic influence, was so devoted to it that he made a eunuch of himself. The first Platonic philosopher to join the Christians was Justin Martyr, who was beheaded in Rome in 155 when his followers tried to harmonize the philosophy of Plato with Gnostics through Christianity. This medium of faith was called the New Platonism. Those involved formed the ideology that those individuals who seek for a higher sanctity should mortify the flesh by avoiding marriage and all indulgences of the senses. From out of the confusing changes came the austere religious hermits, celibate priests, monks and nuns. By 314 in the Council of Caesarea, it was decided that if a priest should marry after his ordination, he must be released from his office. This was written into their first canon of scripture. The seventh canon forbid the priest to even be present at the marriage of a bigamist. In the 4th century a sect called the Severians was so pious they said, woman was the work of Satan, and marriage is diabolical. Their laws were all bent on celibacy, which in turn led to their own extinction. But the doctrine of celibacy was not entirely stamped out. 
The Valencians believed that merely restraining themselves from women was not enough. They administered laws that required themselves to be castrated. They were convinced that none but eunuchs could be saved in the kingdom of heaven. These are the same people who have changed many of the doctrines and laws of God, such as baptism and dash once submerged in a river, was transformed into a pouring, dipping, or sprinkling, all attended with a long ceremony, rites and words, signs of the cross, exorcism, salt and sureties with godfathers and godmothers. Sacrament then dash a simple supper of bread and wine, transformed into wafers, robes, liturgies, transubstantiations of the actual blood and flesh of Christ, to be worshipped and eaten. Marriage and dash simple order of matrimony became a spectacle not unlike a circus, with a host of traditional regulations and legal obligations. Out of this acquisition of peculiar converts, came the new leaders. Their interpretation and understanding soon became law. Their decrees postulated the doctrine that polygamy was acceptable up to about 30, but after 33 ed it was a sin. The curious idea that something could be virtuous, holy and acceptable to God for 4,000 years and then suddenly become immoral, unholy and condemned by the Lord, was enough to make anyone question their doctrine as well as their leadership. Even though God said, I am the Lord, I changed not. These new shepherds said he did. All the Bible commentators say that the laws of God are unchangeable, perpetual and perfect, and they agree that the commandments of God to Moses were not changed by Jesus. Yet ministers of today, like the pagan philosophers of Rome, say that they were. Martin Luther mentioned the plausibility of plural marriage in a sermon at Wittenberg in 1522. It was not a hasty statement or conclusion, but one that resulted from a great deal of study in the scriptures. Eighteen years after giving this sermon, he performed a plural marriage to Prince Philip of Hesse. It seems that Philip's wife was either incapable or refused to bear him a son that would inherit his name on his throne. He appealed to Martin Luther for an answer to the problem, suggesting that since divorce was wrong perhaps taking a second wife was not. Luther and his colleagues wrote him a reply. XXI. But after all, if your highness is fully resolved to marry a second wife, we judge it ought to be done secretly, as we have said with respect to the dispensation demanded on the same account, that is, that none but the person you shall wed, and a few trusty persons, know of the matter, and they, too, obliged to secrecy under the seal of confession. Hence no contradiction nor scandal of moment need be apprehended, for it is no extraordinary thing for princes to keep concubines, and though the vulgar should be scandalized thereat, the more intelligent would doubt of the truth, and prudent persons would approve of this moderate kind of life, preferable to adultery, and other brutal actions. There is no need of being much concerned for what men will say, provided all goes right with conscience. So far do we approve it, and in those circumstances only by specified. 
for the gospel hath neither recalled nor forbid what was permitted in the law of Moses with respect to marriage. Jesus Christ has not changed the external economy, but added justice only, and life everlasting for reward. He teaches the true way of obeying God, and endeavors to repair the corruption of nature. Your Highness hath therefore, in this writing, not only the approbation of us all, in case of necessity, concerning what you desire, but also the reflections we have made thereupon. We beseech you to weigh them, as becoming a virtuous, wise, and Christian prince. We also beg of God to direct all for his glory and your highness's salvation. May God preserve your highness. We are most ready to serve your highness given at Wittenberg the Wednesday after the feast of Saint Nicholas, 1539. Your Highness has most humble and most obedient subjects and servants. Martin Luther, Philip Melanchthon, Martin Busser, Anthony Corvin, Adam, John Leving, Justice Wind 30, Dennis Melantha. From History of the Variations of the Protestant Churches, Volume 1, by James Benign Beaujuit. All went well with the new marriage until Philip's new mother-in-law decided that it was either too wonderful or too terrible to be kept a secret. Pandemonium wasn't the only thing to fall on Luther's head, and he resolved that society wasn't quite ready for these pearls from the Bible. He concluded that if anyone else wanted to be united in plural marriage, they would have better success in asking someone other than himself to perform the ceremony. The founder of the Church of England was also a polygamist. This was King Henry VIII, who has been married for nearly 20 years to Catherine of Aragon. But then he fell deeply in love with Anne Boleyn. Finally in the year 1532 he was privately married to her, and like that of the German prince, it was done in a secret ceremony. The Roman Church had instilled a fear to make people believe that polygamy was unchristian. So those who didn't believe their doctrine were under the painful necessity of keeping their plural marriages secret. But King Henry was always under the fear of having trouble with society and with the Church, so he sought for a divorce from his first wife. But the Church would not sanction it, whereupon the King pronounced himself the head of the Church in England. The Church of England now had for its founder a polygamist. It is evident that the majority of the people did not consider polygamy an issue because they acknowledged him as the head of their church over the celibate Pope of Rome. The 20-year marriage, which had resulting children, was dissolved by divorce through an act of parliament and was considered null and void and of no effect. But 20 years later by similar act it was considered, accepted, to stand with God's law, valid and to all intents and purposes. This royal king and priest had a total of eight marriages before his life concluded. In 1539 anyone who denied the law of transubstantiation, sacrament of Lord Supper becoming the actual body of Christ, was a heretic, and the offender was to be burned to death and to forfeit as in cases of high treason. In the year 1547, it was all repealed and set aside. 
1553 Queen Mary came to the throne, and all was revived again. Hundreds were burned alive. In 1562 this doctrine was abolished and said to be unprovable by Holy Writ, and repugnant to the plain words of Scripture. God could not be of one mind during the reign of Henry, another at the time of Queen Mary, and then another with Elizabeth. Neither can God be so variable as to be one thing with Moses, another with Christ, and still otherwise with men after them. The word of God stands through time as always and dash the word of God. God never meant his works for man to mend, said Dryden. Napoleon Bonaparte wanted children and especially an heir, but Josephine could have none. She was a virtuous noble woman but the only alternative was to divorce her so that he could marry another. The reasons for the divorce were announced, but it was the turning point in his career. From this time on, his life became a disaster. As one author said, one cannot, even now, after so long a time, contemplate the tears of Josephine and the subsequent disasters of Napoleon, without cursing the narrow bigotry of monogamy and wishing that the golden age of polygamy had returned before his day. History and Philosophy of Marriage, Campbell, p. 193. The history of the Jewish nation also reached a climactic point during these dark ages. Polygamy was once a law and considered as such, but today it is different. Some Jewish narrators are inclined to believe that the polygamous marriages of some of the patriarchs need excuse and apology, while others accept it as an ancient law and even practice polygamy today. The famous scholar and historian, Flavius Josephus, has been named among the Jewish polygamists. It is not known how many wives he had, but the Jewish scholar, Dr. Irving H. Cohen, acknowledged that Josephus had one wife in Palestine and another in Egypt. Justin Martyr asserted that during his time in the second century, the Jews were permitted to have four to five wives. The scholars of Jewish history acknowledge that end dash, among the judges, however, polygamy was practiced, as it was also among the rich and the nobility. Conflicts of the law were confusing. Jewish law reached the Middle Ages with polygamy permitted, but not much practiced. In the codification of the Jewish law, Maimonides, Yud, Ishat 14, makes it lawful for man to contract many simultaneous marriages. However, an express prohibition against polygamy was pronounced by R. Jashom B. Judah, which was soon accepted in all the communities of northern France and of Germany. Some authorities suggested that R. Jashom's decree was to be enforced for a time only, namely, up to 1240, probably believing that the Messiah would appear before that time. The Jews of Spain practiced polygamy as late as the 14th century. The Spanish Jews, as well as their brethren in Italy and in the Orient, soon gave up these practices, and today, but few cases of polygamy are found among them. 
1843, Joseph Smith, founder of Mormonism, proclaimed the validity of the Bible and God's sanction of the doctrine of having many wives and concubines. He, too, was under the necessity of practicing polygamy in secrecy because of the superstitious and prejudiced minds of his time. But by 1852 the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints accepted the doctrine and publicly announced it nationwide. As a rather humorous sidelight, the famous midget Tom Thumb went to visit Brigham Young, saying that he didn't understand the principle of polygamy. Brigham replied, well, Tom, when I was your size, I didn't understand it either. And not even too many Mormons understood it and dash only from 3% to 18% ever practiced polygamy at any one time during its 38-year history in the LDS Church. However, some of the Mormons, including the widow of Joseph Smith, organized a church of their own in 1862, the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, mostly because they did not believe or accept the doctrine of polygamy. Yet on April 14, 1972, they accepted a ruling that would permit polygamists to join their church. Here is the unbelievable paradox of Mormonism. One church initially and vehemently rejected polygamy, but later accepted polygamists into their church. The other adopted polygamy as a tenet of their faith and members suffered persecution, prison and even death to defend it. Then within a few years they rejected it and anyone who advocated or practiced it would be excommunicated. Our founding fathers bequeathed to this nation a document establishing freedom and dash assuring its citizens the freedom of conscience, religion, and personal privacy against big government interference. Those patriots spilled their blood to preserve this constitution, and inalienable rights became a sacred trust. However, wicked men soon got into office, swearing to defend that constitution, but forming laws directly contradictory to it. Why have the laws of God been changed? Because men have adopted their own superstitions and prejudices in preference to God's inalienable rights to man. For instance, here are some superstitions of our time that have changed the laws of God. 1. Human law can supersede divine law. Man has made, and usually does make, laws which are contrary to those of God. 2. Marriages are not binding unless civil authority approves. Customs, regulations and courts can overturn the moral code of laws which God has established. 3. Women may be seduced and rejected without any legal recourse. Unless a state approved the ceremony is performed, there is little legal claim. If a child is conceived, a state approved abortion may be performed with state tax money. 4. Prostitution can be and often is legal. Licenses, medical checks, Permits and income tax from prostitution are part of our tradition, and often countenanced, if not practiced, by civil authority. 5. Polygamy was lived in the Old Testament, but done away in the New Testament. 
This is part of the unscriptural traditions that have more validity than the Bible. 6. Polygamy is a crime. Polygamy was lived by the most recognized men of God in the Bible, but it is outlawed by many civil legislators. 7. Jesus was a bachelor. Most ministers believe that Jesus was too holy to be married, or else marriage was too unholy for Jesus. They suppose that the law of increase was God-given for everyone and everything but Jesus was exempt from that law. 8. Polygamy is a sin equal to adultery. Nowhere in the Bible can such a ridiculous absurdity be supported, but our modern preachers say so. 9. Polygamy today cannot have religious sanction. Polygamists found in Catholic, Protestant or Mormon churches are quickly excommunicated. Abraham, Jacob, David, Moses, Joseph Smith and a host of other prophets would not find fellowship in the churches of today. 10. The Gospel can change. Men have changed the Gospel and intend to change it more as they progress with civil regulations, customs and the voice of the people. God said his blessings are always predicated upon specific laws. Mankind intend to get the same blessings regardless of what laws they obey. As a result of man's superstitions and prejudices, let's compare the laws of God to those of man. 1. God said to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Genesis man says we must control births. The earth has too many people on it now. 2. God said that if a man should entice a maid and lie with her, he shall surely endow her to be his wife. Man must seduce a hundred girls as a sport, and he surely need not endow them as wives. 3. When a man has had carnal knowledge of a woman, he may not put her away all his days. Man says that he can put away as many wives as he marries and dash all legally if he can afford to pay the court. 4. God says that when a woman is joined to a man, they shall be one body and one flesh. Genesis man says that only the civil courts have a legal right to make a man and woman united. 5. God said that if a man have two wives, that he must treat them equally in his inheritances. If a man have two wives, the second marriage is null and void. He surely shall not have two wives, nor equally support them. 6. If a man and woman commit adultery, they shall be put to death. Adultery is popular. House key exchanges are modern games. They shall not be put to death. 7. God said there shall be no whores among the daughters of Israel, the whore shall die. Man says that prostitutes shall not die, but they shall be paid richly and given the finest clothes, cars, apartments, licenses, and shall be highly respected as a necessity to the community. In 1862 the United States passed an anti-bigamy law. 
it would disincorporate a church practicing polygamy and limit their amount of real estate to $50,000. Any value to exceed that would be forfeited to the United States government. This act was to curb polygamists from owning property through theocratic institutions inconsistent with our form of government. In March 1882 they passed the Edmonds Act, named for Senator George F. Edmonds of Vermont. This provided for a fine not to exceed $300, an imprisonment not to exceed six months, or both, if found guilty of having a polygamous wife. It also declared any person living polygamy incompetent for jury service. Furthermore, it declared any person in polygamy ineligible for public office. This act became so flagrant as to impose the interpretation that any person professing even a belief in polygamy as a religious principle, was considered ineligible to vote or hold public office. A commission appointed by the federal government in Utah declared that in the first year after this bill was passed, 12,000 men and women were excluded from registration and voting. Anyone who would not deny the charge of polygamy was considered guilty. On February 19, 1887, another amendment known as the Edmonds-Tucker Act was made a law, without the signature of President Cleveland. The Attorney General proceeded to confiscate both real and personal property of the Mormon Church. This act abolished territorial women's suffrage, disinherited children born in plural marriage, prescribed a comprehensive test oath for polygamists to sign or they would be unable to vote hold office, or serve on juries. The act also required all marriages to be certified in the probate courts. The act eventually led to the confiscation of over $1 million in property and cash from the Mormon Church. These and other interpretations against polygamy were upheld by the Supreme Court. It is ironical that at the time these laws were being enacted against polygamists, Prostitutes were swarming around Washington, D.C., like bees around a hive. Furthermore, many congressmen were bestowing gifts upon these harlots while making such unconstitutional laws. If God would have given the law against plurality of wives as he did against the plurality of husbands, then the matter would have been settled. He clearly stated that anyone with plural husbands should be stoned to death. But with plural wives, he honored the men, the wives, and the children, adding blessings and promises, and continuing his communication with them. Thus the difference between the laws of God and those of men. Any qualified lawyer who understands law will admit that there must be a review of the whole law to determine the meaning of any statute in the law. Thus. Any sentence in the Bible having a doubtful or questionable meaning must be compared to all the law that has been given on that subject. The Mosaic law is referred to over 200 times in the New Testament, and in not one instance was it criticized or considered obsolete or changed. If you take a watch or an engine with cogs, wheels, shafts and gears, and remove one part, it will throw the whole works into disorder. So it is with the laws established by Moses. 
This is why the Saviour said that not one jot or tittle would be removed. To judge a law properly, we can do as Jesus said and look at its fruits. Our complicated system of lawycraft and civil madness that fills our courts with marriage and divorce legislation and litigation could only be the propagation of Satan himself. But let's briefly consider the fruits of both monogamy and polygamy. The fruits of monogamy, adultery and homosexuality are becoming commonplace. Prostitution thrives as one of the biggest industries of our society. Venereal disease has reached epidemic proportions. Depopulation and sterility are the natural results of prostitutes and their patrons. Sex and sensualism have entered the schools, pornographic magazines, movies, and they are creating a people described by Jeremiah, they were as fed horses in the morning, everyone ate after his neighbor's wife. Their illicit affairs have made a rich industry of contraceptives and medical sterility. Divorce and remarriage are popular with many people, causing children, if they are allowed to be born, confusion as to who their parents are. The fruits of polygamy Polygamy is a written law of God, and given by heavenly instruction. It is moral and has been honored by God's people for thousands of years. It gives a woman the chance to marry the man she wants. It provides a man with children if his first wife is barren. It stops prostitution. Men who can provide for a large family have the opportunity to do so. A woman may be one of several wives, yet she enjoys more freedom and more right to choose her kind of work or where to spend her time than a monogamous wife. The resulting children can play at home in a controlled atmosphere with their brothers and sisters, rather than having to choose their friends from among the Gentiles. Summary with all of the legal confusion, pagan traditions, and warped morality of our generation, it is no wonder that the devil and his imps are able to rule over modern Christianity. Our civilized society has produced a world filled with crime, whoredom, illegitimate children, and venereal diseases and ash bulging the walls of our prisons and insane asylums. We are suffering from broken homes, aborted children, atheism, divorce, and homosexuality. The reasons are simple, we have invented laws and regulations opposed to those which God has given. The prophet Daniel said that in the last days the devil would have power over men to speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws. Jesus contended against the same evils by saying, that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. But the evils in Jesus' day were not as wicked as they are in our time. We have sophisticated crime. We have hid state and federal laws to legalize iniquity and punishment for obeying God. We have gathered together the wickedness of all the corrupt ancient nations by incorporating 1. The immorality of Babylon 2. The marriage laws of Rome 3. The conniving money manipulations of the Pharisees and 4. The atheistic educational systems of the pagans. 
Yet we have the audacity to boast of our advanced lawful and civilized society. Chapter 25 Rules of Conduct Okay, so that's the end of the reader program. Now we'll get into the commentary portion of the program. Once again, the guest call-in number is 917-889-8827. That's 917-889-8827. There's also a chat room available at blogtalkradio.com forward slash fundamentally Mormon. Thank you for listening. Contest at Law, Chapter 24 of Polygamy in the Bible, pages 248 to 268. The Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Isaiah, Chapter 33, Verse 22. Since the time of Christ, perhaps nothing portrays the foolishness of man as vividly as his laws governing marriage. Numerous, inconsistent, and outright ridiculous martial laws have been marred every era in history. Most of this legislation is bent towards superstition rather than practically or practicality or divine law. Upon close examination, it will be observed that man's laws are always changing, but God's laws remain constant. This often causes a clash between civil and biblical law, but human legislatures should have no more jurisdiction over marriage than they do over baptism or the Lord's Supper. Men might legislate laws contrary to the Ten Commandments if they wish, but that does not invalidate them nor change God's sanction of them. Who would suppose that courts and Congress could assume the power to legislate against God's laws? Nevertheless, such tribunals have often enacted laws against God's laws of marriage. Page 249. Civil authority has no jurisdiction over the freedom of conscience. Men are accountable to the dictates of their own conscience in moral and religious matters, for this is God's inalienable right to man. Men must proclaim, or men proclaim and subscribe to the separation of church and state, which actually is nowhere in the Constitution, which means a structure, well, I guess it is in the First Amendment, because the government's not supposed to meddle in the affairs of the religious beliefs of others, uh, or they're uh, carrying out their religious beliefs. But anyway, which means the church has no right to make laws to govern the state, but conversely, it also means that the state has no right to govern or dictate laws governing a church or religion. Had the scriptures forbidden polygamy, all the human laws that could be enacted could not make it, make it lawful in the sight of God. 
for that would place men above God. On the other hand, if God has not forbidden plural marriage, then all the men on the earth, even if joined with the angels in heaven, cannot make it sinful. Throughout history, we have seen the flagrant abuse of both church and state in making and enforcing unreasonable and outlandish laws. Suppose Abraham, Jacob, and or Moses lived in our contemporary society. Many of the Christian nations have laws that would put them in jail. But the real burlesque of modern churches is that they would have these men excommunicated. We live in a generation when men have enacted laws against plural marriage, but they rarely punish men or women for a dozen divorces, sexual seduction, spawning illegitimate children, aborting babies, or whoredom. And, like, you can run out and have sex with a different person every night, and you can even have roommates that you're having sex with. But that's not a big deal. But as soon as you call it something that you believe religiously, all of a sudden it's a felony or a misdemeanor. You know? Anyway. What an irony. We do not punish what God condemns. But we punish what God has commanded. Um, real quick. If polygamy were a sin, would the governments of this world condemn it? Um, I mean, Satan, would he condemn it? Would he fight so hard to to persecute those who believe in polygamy, especially plural celestial marriage. I I don't know. It's just something to think about. The prime, prime example by hands of men administering civil law, Christ was condemned and crucified. Page 250. Since polygamy seems to have been a popular type of marriage in biblical times, let us consider when monogamy was originally enforced as a law. Romulus, the founder of Rome, was the leader of a band of outlaws. After the ravaging and sacking of nearby communities, they hid in and among the hills of Rome. Eventually, their numbers became so great that they wanted to become a community with wives because it was all a bunch of robber, whatever, and they were all men, right? Since they had no women among them, they chose to catch the Sabian women who came to the river to bathe and wash clothes. After their successful wrestling, they decided to make a law against any man having too many wives while others had none at all. It was called monogamy. And this is the first instance of any such law to enforce that system of marriage. But they also believed in divorce, and so it was not uncommon for Romans to have married a half a dozen women in a half a dozen years. This was, this was tandem polygamy. Yet with all the power, size, and dominion that Ro- the Roman Empire aspired to and attained, their marriage laws continued to be the same as they were with that little band of outlaws who first established them. It is said that Julius Caesar attempted to have a law passed in favor of polygamy, but could not affect it. 
the Romans were too much opposed to the practice of the Jewish and Christian people to be persuaded to adopt it. The Roman government was monogamous and therefore had an inescapable, inescapable political pressure on the religion of Christians. Christianity was not tolerated by Rome until Constantine, the Roman emperor in the 4th century, and decided that all Romans should become Christians. He issued a decree that all Rome would be baptized Christians, we're on page 251. Old, young, soldiers, criminals, etc., all were baptized even though they were not converted. It was a strange spectacle, but the Romans were not really made Christians. Christianity became Roman. That's because Satan used Constantine to hijack the true religion of God through his prophet and apostle, Yeshua, who is called Jesus Christ. Monogamy was not the only form of heresy that had been either forced or infiltrated into Christian religion. As early as the first century, the doctrine of celibacy began to make inroads into Christianity also. Many Gnostic teachers of the first century, such as, as Simeon Magus, Manandrum, I'm pretty sure I'm saying that wrong. Okay, let me say that again. Simeon Magus, Manarder and Centurius, <laughs> who all studied at Alexandria, Egypt, later became Christians. They brought with them many of the Gnostic teachings which were infused into Christianity and, the disseminate, and then disseminated the Christian doctrine. Part of this heresy began in the first century, prevailing in the second century, and had permanently corrupted the church in the third and fourth centuries. Much of this Gnostic idealism came from some of the Persian or Mag Magian systems of faith. Some of the early Gnostic Christians were Valentine, Montanos, Tertullian, and Origen. Saturninus, in 15 AD, was advocating that moral law was ascetic and severe, that celibacy was more pure than marriage. Another was Bardensanus, who wrote in 170 AD that the disciples of Christ would be closer to God if they would renounce wedlock, abstain from animal food, so any meats, and live in solitude on the slightest and most meager diet, and even use water instead of wine in the Lord's Supper. End quote, and that is Cagetile's History of the Roman Empire, Part 2, Chapter 7. Okay, there's just a lot of names that I'm going to be stumbling over here, so I hope you will be patient with me. Montanus in 175 AD, advocated that there should be no second marriages and chaste women should wear veils. While most distinguished, his most distinguished disciple was Tertullian, Bishop of Carthage, page 152, whose voluminous works have been held in the greatest esteem. Origen, whose learning in numerous writings 
also had the same Gnostic influence, was so devoted to it that he made a eunuch of himself. The, flir- the first Platonic re- uh, philosopher to join the Christians was Justin Martyr, who was beheaded in Rome in 155 AD. His followers tried to harmonize the philosophy of Plato with the Gnostic, Gnostics through Christianity. This medium of faith was called the New Platoism. Those involved form the ideology that those individuals who seek for a higher sanctity should mortify the flesh by avoiding marriage and all indulgences of the senses. From out of the confusing changes came the austere religious hermits, celebrated priests, monks, and nuns. By the year 314 A.D., in the Council of Caesarea, it was decided that if a priest should marry after his ordination, he must be released from his office. This was written into their first canon of scripture. The seventh canon forbids a priest to even be present at the marriage of a bigamist. So that's a man who marries uh, two wives. In the 4th century, a sect called the Severians were, all, were so pious that they said, quote, women, woman was the work of Satan and marriage is diabolical. Their laws were all bent on celibacy, which in turn led to their own extinction. But the doctrine of celibacy was not entirely stamped out. The Valachians believed that mere merely restraining themselves from women was not enough. They administered laws that required themselves to be castrated. They were convinced that none but eunuchs could be saved in the kingdom of heaven. Page 253. These are the same people who have changed many of the doctrines and laws of God, such as baptism, once submerged in a river, was transformed formed into a pouring, dipping, and sprinkling, all attended with a long ceremony, rites, and words, signs of the cross, exorcism, salt, and sureties, with godfathers and godmothers. And I've read that the whole sprinkling baptism thing came because Constantine never joined the church until he was on his deathbed. And because he could not get up to be immersed in water baptism, he uh, basically sanctioned the pouring of water or the sprinkling of water on his head and said that that would would suffice. All right. Sacrament. A simple supper of bread and wine transformed into wafers, robes, liturgies, transubstantiation of the actual blood and flesh of Christ, to be worshipped and eaten. So the sacrament became an idol. Marriage. Simple order of matrimony became a spectacle not unlike a circus, with a host of traditional regulations and legal obligations. Out of this acquisition of particular converts came the new leaders. Their interpretations and understandings soon became law. Their decrees postulated the doctrine that polygamy was acceptable up to about 30 A.D. 
But after 33, it was a sin and the curious idea that something could be virtuous, holy, and acceptable to God for 4,000 years and then suddenly become immoral, unholy, and condemned by the Lord was enough to make anyone question their doctrine as well as their leadership. Even though God said, I, the Lord, I am the Lord, I change not. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. These new shepherds said, uh, said he did. Okay. Let's see. Even though God said, basically he's just saying that, you know, like, God might say one thing, but you should listen to them because they know the correct interpretation of Scripture, even though it contradicts former revelation. Anyway, um, and by the way, um, so all of you that believe that the Torah was nailed to the cross, um, well, we get tithing from the law of God. And these churches will say the Torah was nailed to the cross, but they tell you that you have to keep paying them tithing. That's interesting. All the Bible commentators say that the laws of God are unchangeable, perpetual, and perfect. And they agree that commandments of God to Moses were not changed by Jesus, yet ministers of today, like the pagan philosophers of Rome, say that they were. Page 254, and we're at 31%. Martin Luther mentioned the plausibility of plural marriage in a sermon at Wittenberg, Germany in 1522. It was not a hasty statement or conclusion, but one that resulted from a great deal of study in the scriptures. Eighteen years after giving this sermon, he performed a plural marriage to Prince Philip of Hesse. It seems that Philip's wife was either incapable or refused to bear him a son that would inherit his name and his throne. He appealed to Martin Luther for an answer to the problem, suggesting that since divorce was wrong, perhaps taking a second wife was not. Luther and his colleagues wrote him a reply, and this is... um, a quote to that, and I don't know where it says XXI, so that would be 21. But after all, if your highness is fully resolved to marry a second wife, we judge it ought to be done secretly, as we have said with respect to the dispensation demanded on the same account. That is, that none but the person you shall wed, and if you trust trusty persons, know of the matter, and they too obliged to secrecy under the seal of confession. Hence no contradiction nor scandal of the moment need be apprehended, for it is of no extraordinary thing for princes to keep concubines, and though the vulgar should be scandalized thereat, the more intelligent would doubt, would doubt of the truth and prudent person would prove of this moderate kind of life, preferable to adultery or other brutal actions. There is no need of being much concerned for what men will say, provided all goes right with the conscience. So far do we approve it, and in those circumstances only by us specified, 
For the gospel hath neither, neither recalled nor forbid what was permitted in the law of Moses with respect to marriage. Page 255 at 36%. Jesus Christ has not changed the eternal economy, external economy, but added justice only and the life everlasting for reward. He teaches the true way of obeying God in endeavoring to repair in the corruption of nature. Your Highness hath therefore in this writing not only the approbation of us all in case of necessity concerning what you desire, but also the reflection we have made thereupon. We beseech you to weigh them as becoming a virtuous, wise, and Christian prince. We also beg of God to direct all for his glory and your highness's salvation. May God preserve your highness. We are most ready to serve your highness given at Wittenberg the Wednesday after the feast of the St. Nicholas in 1539. Your highness most humble and most obedient subjects and servants, Martin Luther, Philip, Melanchthon, Martin Busser, Anthony Corvin, Adam, and John, well, it just says Adam, I don't know, John Levingu, Justin Winterfear, I'm just going to, well, I got, I got one word left, one name left, Dennis Melanther. Anyway, that comes from the History of Variations of the Protestant Churches, Volume 1 by J. James B. Nine Basuart. All went well with the new marriages until the new marriage until Philip's new mother-in-law decided that it was either too wonderful or too terrible to keep a secret. Of course, some spinster mother-in-law is going to out him. 256, page 256. Pandemonium wasn't the only thing to fall on Luther's head. He resolved that society wasn't quite ready for these pearls from the Bible. He concluded that if anyone else wanted to be united in plural marriage, they would have better success in asking someone other than himself to perform the ceremony. The founder of the Church of England was also a polygamist. This was King Henry VIII, and I hate that man, but I'm actually related to him. And um, so, little story. I was sitting in a sushi restaurant with a bunch of my friends in St. Petersburg, Florida. And this guy who knew one of the girls that I was sitting with, he came up to her. He's like, hi, how you doing? And then he was a history major, and he loved King Henry VIII. And he looked at me, and I don't look, I I was more, I was like a hundred and something pounds heavier than I am now. Anyway, he looks at me and he says, you're the spitting image of Henry VIII. And I was like, I'm a direct descendant of Henry VIII. He says, no way. And he actually had a a screenshot of a portrait that was painted of King Henry VIII saved on his phone. And he showed it to me, and I was like, and he showed it to everyone else, and they're all like, oh my gosh. 
And I was like, yeah, I'm a direct descendant of King Henry VIII. Of course, I probably look like him, but I never noticed. But he noticed. So, weird tangent story. I know that was interesting. That happened in, I think it was 2011. It was 2011 or 2012, because that's when I lived in St. Petersburg, Florida. Anyway, so this was King Henry VIII. Oh, hold on here. Who had been married nearly 20 years to Catherine of Aragon. Oh my gosh. This guy makes me so angry. Like, if you've read this history, this guy was a piece of work. Anyway. <sighs> okay, so he had been married nearly 20 years to Catherine of Aragon. But then he fell deeply in love with Anne Boleyn. Finally, in the year 1532, he was privately married to her, and like that of the German prince, it was done in a secret ceremony. The Roman church instilled a fear to make people believe that polygamy was unchristian, so those who didn't believe their doctrine were under the painful necessity of keeping their plural marriages secret. But King Henry was always under the fear of having trouble with society and with the church, so he sought for a divorce from his first wife, but the church would not sanction it, whereupon the king pronounced himself the head of the Church of England. The Church of England now had for its founder a polygamist. <laughs> It is evident that the majority of the people did not consider polygamy an issue because they acknowledged him as the head of their church over the celibate Pope of Rome. The 20-year marriage, which had had resulting children, was dissolved by a divorce through the Act of Parliament and was considered null and void and of no effect. But 20 years later, by a similar act, it was considered accepted to stand with God's law valid and to in, to all intent and purposes. We're on page 257 if you're reading along. This royal king and priest had a total of eight marriages before his life concluded. In 1539, anyone who denied the law of transubstantiation or the sacrament of Lord's Supper becoming the actual body of Christ was called a heretic and was an offender to be burned to death and forfeit. So if you had critical thinking skills, I, you're probably going to get killed. As in, cases of, uh, as in a case of high treason. In the year 1547, it was all repealed and set aside in 1553. Queen Mary came to the throne and all was revived again. Hundreds were burned alive. And that's because she was a... These royals, I I swear these royals are so narcissistic. And this Queen Mary, she, they, they called her Bloody Mary. That's where that comes from. <clears throat> Hundreds were burned alive. In 1562, this doctrine was abolished and said to be unprovable by holy writ writ and repugnant to the plain word of scripture. 
God could not be of one mind during the reign of Henry, another at the time of Bloody Mary. I'll just call her what she was, Queen Mary, Bloody Mary. And then at another time with Elizabeth. Neither can God be so variable as to be one thing with Moses and another thing with Christ. And still otherwise with men after them, the word of God stands through time as always the word of God. God never meant his works for any man to mend, said Dryden. Napoleon Bonaparte wanted children and especially an heir, but Josephine could not have none. She was a virtuous noblewoman, but the only alternative was to divorce her so that he could marry another. The reason for divorce, the reasons for divorce were announced, but this was a the turning point in his career. From this time on, his life became a disaster. As one author said, quote, you cannot now, you cannot even now, after so long a time, contemplate the tears of Josephine and the subsequent disasters of Napoleon without cursing the narrow bigotry bigotry of monogamy and wishing that the golden age of polygamy had returned before his day and quote history of philosophy of marriage by campbell page 193 so i think this hits me kind of hard because um first of all like he shouldn't have had to throw her away because he wanted children. Um, And then personally, my first wife and I tried to have children. And she couldn't get pregnant. And she wanted children so bad And she was very angry that I couldn't get her pregnant. And she actually told the judge when we were receiving a divorce or an annulment that I was sterile and that I lied to her and I couldn't get her pregnant and she wanted children. And that was one of the main reasons why she decided to leave me. And... It's weird because she was born in 1980, so October 21st of this year, she will be 42 years old, I believe. Yeah, 42. She's never married again. She has no children. We divorced in 2006, and I was so torn apart about what happened between us because I really, truly loved her. But eventually I healed, and I started dating again in 2011. And I got married in 2012. And... We got married in July of 2012, and we had our first baby May 20th of 2013.
and my wife came with two children um, and their father is completely out of the picture. He's actually in prison. So um, they were six and three when they married their mother. But my wife has been pregnant. Well, we have three living children. We had um, a blighted omen, omen or whatever. We've had um, miscarriages. Uh, we had a stillborn and we had a baby who was born alive but only lived for 13 hours. But the point of the matter is that, like, I wasn't sterile. Like, my first wife insisted. And I don't know what was the deal with her, but... I don't know. It just it 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 hits a nerve. Anyway, um, and I don't think polygamy would have you know changed anything between my first wife and I. But like, if she was part of a family that had children, yeah, she could have the jealousy issues, but she could also be a mother to children, even though she wasn't able to to be a mother to her own children. So, I don't know. She actually um, is a music teacher for young children now. So she, in fact, is kind of a mother for children, but they're not her own. And um, in a polygamous relationship, she would actually live with these children and be a mother to them, uh, much the way other... Um, so I have a friend who has two wives, and they're having children, and they've had children, and um, both of the, the wives of my friend are mothers to these children. They care for them. They take care of them. Uh, his wife, who is also my friend, is a nurse. And, you know, she has a job and he has a job as well. And the first wife is very highly educated, but she has chosen to stay home and take care of the kids and to homeschool them. And she is a mother to all of the children. And the other wife is a mother to all of the children. Uh, but in that circumstance, I guess, it would be a little bit different because both of these women can have children. So, anyway, and let's get on with the reading. The history of the Jewish nation also reached a climatic point during the Dark Ages. Polygamy was once a law and considered as such, but today it is different. Some Jewish narrators are inclined to believe that the polygamous marriages of some of the patriarchs Patriarchs need excuse and apology, while others accept it as an ancient law and even practice polygamy today. But that's actually not very common. Um, there was a really great venerated rabbi. I don't remember. I, I think he lived in the 1800s, but he basically was like, 
you know, he denied polygamy and said that it was good for them of old, but for us today, we should not live polygamy. And because of that man, most Orthodox Jews are not polygamists. And uh, I think he said something to the effect of when the Messiah comes, God will reinstitute polygamy. And I don't know where he gets that from because he doesn't claim to be a prophet. He's just a rabbi. But the Jews think that because of a verse in scripture that they have more authority than the laws of God, which is weird because in Deuteronomy chapter 23, it says neither to add to or take away from the Torah of God. But whatever. Anyway, the famous scholar and historian Flavius Josephus has been named among the Jewish polygamists. It is not known how many wives he had, but the Jewish scholar, Dr. Irving H. Cohen, acknowledged that Josephus had, quote, one wife in Palestine and another in Egypt, and quote, Jews of the Torah by Cohen, page 66. Justin Martyr asserted that during his time in the second century, the Jews were permitted to have four or five wives. The scholars of Jewish history acknowledge that, quote, among the judges, however, polygamy was practiced, as it was also among the rich and the nobility. And quote Jewish Encyclopedia, volume 10, page 120. Conflicts, conflicts with the law were confusing. Jewish laws react, reached the Middle Ages with polygamy per- permitted, but not much practiced. In the codification of the Jewish law by Maimonides, Yod Ishut 14 makes, a law, makes it lawful for a man to contract many simultaneous marriages. Uh, we're on page 259. However, an express prohibition against polygamy was pronounced by R. Gershom B. Judah, and I guess he lived in 960 to 1028. So I guess he was 68 when he died. Anyway, or something like that. <laughs> Which was soon accepted in all the communities in northern France and Germany. Some authorities suggested that R. Gershom, De- Gershom's decree was to be enforced for a time only, namely up to 1240 A.D., probably believing that the Messiah would appear before that time. The Jews of Spain practiced polygamy as late as the 14th century. The Spanish Jews, as well as their brethren in Italy and in the Orient, soon gave up these practices and today, but few cases of polygamy are found among them. And quote Jewish Encyclopedia, volume 10, page 121. In 1843, Joseph Smith, founder of Mormonism, proclaimed the validity of the Bible and God's sanction and the doctrine of having many wives and concubines. He, too, was under the necessity of practicing polygamy in secrecy because of the superstitions and prejudiced minds of his time. But by 1852, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints accepted the doctrine and publicly announced it nationwide uh so i've got to go off on another tangent that relates to this okay so i don't know a month or two ago i 
felt like I needed to stop reading what I was reading and just spend a little bit of time in the novel expositor, which I had read in the past, but it's been a long time since I read it. So I did two episodes on this podcast format about the novel expositor. Now, what the novel expositor was, was there were a couple of individuals who were in leadership of the church who felt that Joseph had fallen, become a fallen prophet. And they were trying to expose the wickedness. And I think they wanted Joseph and the church to repent or something like that. And in June of 1844, they published a newspaper which called out a bunch of stuff on Joseph Smith and exposed certain things. And uh, Joseph Smith condemned it and called it a public nuisance and had people go and destroy the printing press. Okay, and that's probably what got him murdered. So on page two, column four, is a a portion of the newspaper called Affidavits. And in that Affidavits, there are many testimonies But I will just give two here because I have them memorized. Well, kind of. So William and Jane Law. Well, William Law was, I think he was like the first or second counselor or something like that. I can't remember exactly. But he was high up in the church. And he said, and his wife testified also under sworn affidavit that in March or April of 1844, now, I think he was more specific. I can't remember if it was March or April. That's on my part. But of 1844, Hiram came to them with a revelation that Joseph had received and read it to them. And that revelation in the description in the Nauvoo Expositor, which was published before the death of Joseph Smith, sounds very much like Section 132 in the Doctrine and Covenants. And it is proof, and these guys hated polygamy. They were calling Joseph Smith a false prophet over it. But it's proof that there was a revelation received which sounded very much like Section 132. Now, later on in, I think, like 1870 or something like that, it was a long time later, 60s or 70s, William Law saw the revelation that was section 132 that Brigham Young released in 1852. And he said that the revelation that Hiram read to him was only a couple of pages long. But the revelation that Brigham had had many things added to it, and it was about seven or eight or nine pages long. But the fact of the matter is, Joseph did receive a revelation on plural marriage. Brigham may have added many things to it, and I believe that he did. And no, I don't believe Brigham was a prophet, and no, I don't believe Brigham had the right to do what he did. Because, you know, section 124, the church was rejected. I don't believe anywhere the Lord's anointed after Joseph Smith, but that there were servants of God who, you know, did their best to uphold the church and to keep it together. And Brigham did that through strong arm tactics, but he also did some things which I just can't 
agree with at all. I mean, oh my gosh, he shouldn't have done what he did. But but William Law said that there was a whole lot more added to that revelation. But he confirmed that there was a revelation that Hiram read to him in April or March, March or April of 1844. And he published similar like from memory what he said that the revelation said which sounds a lot like section 132 and then he confirmed it later on in his life said yeah that's the revelation but there wasn't so much to that revelation that Brigham added a whole bunch of stuff to it it just shows that yeah like people that want to say Brigham the horrible evil man is the one that introduced it they have to reject reality They have to reject the evidence. Now, I don't believe uh, Joseph Smith actually consummated those marriages. And uh, they tried to find um, DNA evidence from the children of the polygamous wives of Joseph Smith, and they were not able to find it. Now, there's everybody's arguing about that, and I don't even know. But anyway... There doesn't seem to be any evidence that Joseph Smith actually had any children with these these women. And some people will say, well, um, Bennett was an abortionist and he just killed all the children. Only problem with that was Bennett was excommunicated for all the stuff that he was doing. And um, who would be the abortionist after Bennett was excommunicated and became an avid anti-Mormon? And then after Joseph was murdered, um, Brigham Young and Heber C. Kimball and all of these guys would have protected the children of Joseph Smith because it would have shown that he had children with these other women. Now, they didn't know about DNA evidence, but people like Amber Lyon or whoever could say that Joseph practiced polygamy and had children. And there's evidence for it. The only problem is the DNA evidence doesn't exist because the people who proclaim to be descendants of Joseph Smith through their polygamy, through his polygamy, they don't exist. It's been debunked. So I believe Joseph did not want to live polygamy at all. And he did the bare minimum, which was more important than the actual marriages themselves, which was that he was sealed to multiple women but he was also sealed to married women who were still married because they were married to Gentiles who could not take them on or to women who would have received a divorce but they couldn't get a divorce or it was too expensive or whatever and they just decided to separate so they were still legally married and Joseph was sealed to them as their uh, plural wife but Joseph was also sealed to men as well. And there's a whole lot more to the sealing ordinances than the people who reject polygamy will admit to. They say, oh, we just have to be sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise to Jesus. And we get that with the baptism of fire through the law of adoption. And they trust everything. And there's a lot of truth in what they say. But there's more to it than what they're saying. And I think that people... Uh, you know, they swing on the pendulum either for or against, but actually the truth is somewhere in the middle. Well, anyway, continuing on, we're at 59% of the reading. 
As a rather humorous sidelight, the famous midget Tom Thumb went to visit Brigham Young, saying that he didn't understand the principle of polygamy, and we're on page 260 at 60%. Brigham replied, well, Tom, when I was your size, I didn't understand it either. (laughs) And not even too many Mormons understood it because only 3 to 18% ever practiced polygamy at any one time during the 38 years of the history of the LDS Church where they did practice polygamy. However, some of the Mormons, including the widow of Joseph Smith, organized a church of, their, of her own. However, some of the Mormons, including the widow of Joseph Smith, so Emma Smith, organized a church of their own in 1862, and they called it the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, mostly because they did not accept or believe or accept the doctrine of polygamy. Yet in April of April 14, 1972, they accepted a ruling that would permit polygamists to join their church. So you can be a polygamist in the community of Christ now, but not in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Brighamite Church. Hmm, that's interesting. Here's the unbelievable paradox of Mormonism. One church initially and vehemently, vehemently rejected polygamy, that's the community of Christ or the, the reorganized church, but later accepted polygamists into their church, and the other adopted polygamy as a tenet of their faith and members suffered persecution, prison, and even death to defend it, then within a few years they rejected it, and anyone who advocated or practiced it would be excommunicated. The Founding Fathers bequeathed to this nation a document establishing freedom, assuring its citizens citizens the freedom of conscience, religion, and personal privacy against big government interference. Those patriots spilled their blood to preserve this constitution and the inalienable or inalienable or inalienable rights. I think that they don't want you to know that it's inalienable because they don't have a right to take a lien out against your freedoms. So they call it inalienable. Anyway, rights became a sacred trust. However, wicked men soon got into office swearing to defend that constitution, but forming laws directly contradictory to it. Why have the laws of God been changed? Because men have adopted their own superstition and prejudices in preference to God's inalienable rights to man. Page 262 at 65%. For instance... Here are some superstitions of our time that have changed the laws of God. Number one, human law can supersede divine law. Man has made and usually does make laws which are contrary to those of God. Number two, marriages are not binding unless civil authority approves. Customs, regulations, and courts can overturn the moral code of laws which God has established. Number three, Women may be seduced and rejected without any legal recourse unless the state-approved ceremony is performed. There is little legal claim. If a child is conceived, a state-approved abortion may be performed with state tax money. Number four, 
Prostitution can be and often is legal. License, medical checks, permits, and income tax from prostitution are part of Okay, that other part was getting too long, so I did a part two, or part three, actually. And we're almost done. We only have uh, 13% left in the reading for today. So we'll just continue with this part three. Once again, the guest call-in number for people who want to go live uh, or to go to the screening room and talk privately is 917-889-8827 and when we are done with the with this um, this part um, we'll bring on whoever wants to ask a question or make a comment and uh, the guest call in number like I said is 917-889-8827 that's 917-889-8827 also, there is a chat room at blogtalkradio.com forward slash fundamentally Mormon, which is during the live streaming portion of the program only. And this program airs Monday through Thursday live from, from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. And then we do a bonus usually on Friday from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. with a flashback Friday, which we'll be doing tomorrow probably. So... Continuing on with the reading. The Mosaic Law is referred to over 200 times in the New Testament and is not, and in not one instance was it criticized or considered obsolete or changed. Page 266. If you take a watch or an engine with cogs, wheels, shafts, and gears and remove one part, it will throw the whole works into disorder. So it is with the laws established by Moses. This is why the Savior said that not one jot or tittle would be removed from the law. To judge a law properly, we can do as Jesus said and look at its fruits. Our complicated system of lawyer craft and civil madness that fills our courts with marriage and divorce legislation and litigation could only be the propagation of Satan himself because the, the government has hijacked the sacred institution of marriage, which is biblical and is a religious rite. Anyway, but let's briefly consider the fruits of both monogamy and polygamy. The fruits of monogamy, adultery and homosexuality are becoming commonplace. Prostitution thrives as one of the biggest industries of our society. Venereal disease has reached epidemic proportions. Depopulation and sterility are the natural results of prostitution and their patrons. Sex and sensualism have entered the schools, pornographic magazines, movies, and websites, for that instance. And they are creating a people described by Jeremiah. Quote, they they were as fed horses in the morning, everyone neighed after his neighbor's wife. Jeremiah chapter 5 verse 8. Their illicit affairs have made a rich industry of contraceptives and medical sterility. Divorce and marriages are popular with many people, causing children, if they are allowed to be born at all, confusion 
as to who their parents are. The fruits of polygamy. Polygamy is a written law of God and given by heavenly instruction. It is, a, it is moral and has been honored by God's people for thousands of years. It gives a woman the chance to marry the man she wants and provides a, a man with children if the, his first wife is barren. It stops prostitution. Men who can provide for a large family have the opportunity to do so. A woman may be one of several wives, yet she enjoys more freedom and right to choose her kind of work or where to spend her time than a monogamous wife. The resulting children can play at home in the controlled atmosphere with their brothers and sisters rather than having to choose their friends from among the Gentiles. Summary. With all of the legal confusion, pagan traditions, and and warped morality of our generation, it is no wonder that the devil and his imps are able to rule over modern Christianity. Our civilized society has produced a world filled with crime, whoredoms, illegitimate children, and venereal diseases, bulging the walls of our prisons and insane asylums. We are suffering from broken homes, aborted children, atheism, divorce, and homosexuality. The reasons are simple. We have invented laws, and by the way, sexuality is a sin both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and people who are willfully rebellious against God's laws have no grace. Grace is given to those who keep God's laws and who screw up and then repent and strive to keep God's laws not to allow all of the rebellious children of the Gentiles to come into the gates of the kingdom. And in Revelations, we know that the kingdom has 12 gates, and they are all named for Hebrew Israelites from the 12 tribes of the house of Yaakov or Jacob. There are no Gentiles in the city of God. If you are a Gentile and you are baptized and you receive Christ and are obedient to his laws and repent when you make mistakes, you are adopted into the house of Israel. And that's scriptural. Anyway, the reasons are simple. We have invented laws and regulations opposed to those which God has given the prophet Daniel said that in the last days the devil would have power over men to speak great words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and think to change times and laws. And by the way, and that's in Daniel chapter 7, verse 25, Isaiah, throughout his word, he says that the reason why the curses of God come upon the people in the last days is because they refuse to keep the law of God or the Torah of God, which is interesting because they thought the Torah was nailed to the cross, but it wasn't. And the only reason you believe that uh, is because Jesus fulfilled the law, but you don't understand the Hebrew, Hebraic sayings or understanding of the Jews and why they said the things that they said and what they meant when they said it. You interpret the scriptures with a Gentile mind, not with an Israelite mind. So you have many false interpretations which you don't get from God because the, inter the correct interpretation belongs to God and you must be a prophet to get it. And we, could, we need to all be prophets. Anyway, 
Jesus contended against the same evils by saying, quote, that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God, Luke chapter 16, verse 15. But the evils of Jesus' day were not as wicked as they are in our time, or on page 268 at 98% of the reading. We have sophisticated crime. We have had state and federal laws to legalize iniquity and punish men for obeying God. We have gathered together the wickedness of all the corrupt ancient nations by incorporating, number one, the immorality of Babylon, number two, the marriage laws of Rome, number three, the conveying money manipulations of the Pharisees, and number four, the atheistic educational system of the pagans. Yet we have the audacity to boast of our advanced, lawful, and civilized society. So that is the end of the program for today. Uh, once again, the guest call-in lines are open. Um, and we are going to be on Chapter 25, which starts on page 269, uh, which chapter is titled The Rules of Conduct, when we come back on Monday. And let me see what day that is. So that'll be the 28th of February. And then we'll continue on with this reading throughout Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday of next week. So, all right. Well, that's the program. And uh, we'll now go to see if Kim and Emma have anything that they want to say and check the call-in lines in the studio and the chat room um, to see if there's anything that you would like to say. Thank you for listening. Hi. Why is there no more noise? I don't know. Are you, did you put Thinking me in the box, or what did you do? You're in the studio right now, or the regular, like, we're talking to the world. On the radio show? Yeah. Oh. Anything to say? <laughs> No, I don't have anything to say. That's how come I didn't have my hand raised or anything. I'm still out doing chores. Okay. He must be up on the thing. Is he there? Uh, He's not on the studio. I think he's, yeah. Um... Well, I don't have anything to say. Do you think we should, like, play something, or do we think we should just end it? Um, I don't know, because I wasn't on there talking with him, so... Um, what did he say you should do afterwards? Did he say you have another clip to play? He said there was... He played, like, the whole thing. He had the whole thing. Oh, in one. Okay. Um... So, yeah, I don't know if I should play anything else. I don't think so. <clears throat> okay. Well, did you give the radio the number, and did you look in the call-in call line to see if anybody had called in? Um. Well, you can give out the number, uh, 917-889-8827, if you want to call in and say something, or even just to listen. 
Uh, yeah. I just reloaded yep. the chat, and it doesn't look like anyone's in there. Okay. <sighs> well, since I don't know because he hasn't said anything to me, so um, you can go ahead and, I guess, cue the music, and um, we'll talk to everybody else on here tomorrow night. Okay. Thank you.